You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james one of the smartest people in history author of losing the nobel prize and think like a nobel prize winner and uh he did almost win the Nobel Prize. Maybe he will one day do it. Uh, Professor Brian Keating, physicist extraordinaire. First, we divide this in two because first, I was really curious about black holes, wormholes, and the beginning of the universe. So we talk about that and he answers some of my questions, which I'm sure some of you might have as well once you hear them. And then we talk about, we have a part two the next day on just the weird things he's seen on college campuses lately with the whole Israel-Hamas stuff. And we talk in general about when is it worth giving up on a goal or a quest or, or I don't know, a life path. So we talk about that. Brian Keating, here he is. This isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. You ever go on Quora when occasionally there's a question like, what's it like to have 180 IQ? Right. And then someone answers as if, because they think they have 180 IQ and they're like, it's... I'm very, I feel very alienated all the time because no one ever understands me. <laughs> or it's like I process inf all the information around me so much faster than everyone else that it's hard to then communicate what I'm seeing and feeling because I know so much. Like it's just, there's so much ego when anyone asks that question on, on Quora or any, or Reddit oh, yeah. or whatever. 
Yeah, it's like uh, when someone asks you, you know, you're a comedian, like, what makes you so funny? Like, it's guaranteed the huh, response. No one ever asked me that when I was good. a comedian. <laughs> it's good because there's no way to be funny. There's no way to answer that uh, question and actually, you know, portray yourself as, as humorous. Because it's like you're just going to be trying, like, oh, I got to make a joke. And yeah, no, to me, it's it's a no-win proposition. But yeah, I mean, people but, say you're, I'm smart. And then I say, well, I have to sing the alphabet song to know what comes after R. You know, it's 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 not what you think. It's not all I'm cracked up to be. What what do you think of the original alphabet was? What do you do think? They, like there was a discussion on some Facebook thread whether or not it was Hebrew because Aleph, Bet, was it Gimel, Dalet, whatever. All mm-hmm. I don't even know the Hebrew You're alphabet. Stretching I'm your, Jewish, your, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of like matches A B C D. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely true. No, so Phoenician and and Hebrew are are pretty similar. If you look at the actual symbols, they're very different from what you know Hebrew looks like today. And of course, no, not too many people speak Phoenician. Um, I always think the most suspicious thing ever found was the Rosetta Stone. You know, if you ever look at the Rosetta Stone, it's got like three different languages on it, and it's like just the three languages you needed to you know decipher every single ancient text ever written. It's just, it's too perfect. It's too, it's too on so the you nose. Think it was, think it's a fraud? It, I mean, there's a good book about it. I haven't finished reading it or listening to it called like The Language of the Gods or something or the... Um, oh, is that like Eric Fromm? And people make it out. Um, there is a book by him, but that's not it. No, it's, um, it's like Simon Winchester. I forget who it is, but um, uh, I, I haven't listened to it in about it over a year. But the thing is, like, it wasn't it wasn't so simple. Like everyone thinks, oh, it's just you know, here's a hieroglyphic of a of a rooster, and it's next to the you know Greek letter rho, and you know whatever. Um, but it, it was like really difficult to to de- decipher it, and it's almost like magical that it that it ever you know provided anything useful. Well. Moving on from the Rosetta Stone yeah. and my random question about <laughs> language, there was a web telescope discovery. I'm very glad you're on today because there was a web telescope discovery recently that has very much disturbed me about the status of the universe. And so here's here's the discovery. Yeah, they found a massive black hole that dates back to 400 million years after the supposed Big Bang happened. And I, you know, we've talked about this many times. The 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 cosmic radiation is i mean how how did suns how did suns even form in time for, for uh, 400 million years how did suns even form in time to create a massive black, black hole yeah well there's a couple ways you could get a black hole i mean could could the black hole have existed before the big bang yeah i mean there are certainly claims that there are what are called primordial black holes so black hole that was present since the beginning of the universe um, that's something that people have considered because it's, it provides a mechanism to explain another thing we don't understand, which is dark matter. So dark matter is this, you know, uh, with a substance that we infer exists because of its gravitational influence on the nearby universe and how our galaxy rotates and how other galaxies rotate. And yet we don't see any evidence for any material like it, but black holes are kind of like idyllic candidates for dark matter. They're not giving off any light. In fact, they swallow up all the light. They're massive, so they have a tremendous amount of gravitational force. And um, and so they, they really behave just like you'd like dark matter to behave. And if dark matter exists, it should have existed very early in the universe's history as well. Uh, so that's one candidate called primordial black holes originating at the Big Bang. Maybe what you're saying is maybe with the Big Bang, a lot of atoms and matter spun off but maybe what remained, sort of like when you smash into a car, there's little bits and pieces everywhere, but some big pieces still exist that weren't really smashed up. Maybe that's these primordial black holes. Well, a black hole in its most idealized form is just uh, an extremely highly curved volume of space-time. So it doesn't... Why is time in the equation there? Why can't you just say it's very dense, you know, enormously almost infinite gravity thing. What what does time have to do with it? Well, because you cannot specify a unique position in space without also allocating the time at which it occurs. Um so in in a sense having the the universe um the the all, all sorts of events that happen in the universe uh are not it's not possible to decouple the effect of some massive object 
only and isolated only to its effect on spatial dimensions. So you have to include time. So time is sort of essential. And in the past, before Einstein, you know, time was supposedly thought to be independent of space. So you'd plot like a cannonball, you know, moving at some, you know, going up to some height as a function of time. So time was this independent variable and you plotted the height of it and then it operated under gravity and it would accelerate and its velocity would change, et cetera. But then Einstein came along and said, well, actually, space and time are one unified entity. And, you know, thinking about them separate would be like, well, trying to understand the motion of an object in three dimensions, but only describing two of them. And so that would lead to, you know, weird, weird kind of project. Like imagine if you're looking at a cannonball and it shoots up and it makes a parabola. So you're looking at it in a profile. But if you look at it from above, it doesn't look like that at all. It just looks like it moves in a straight line. So suppressing a dimension has grave consequences in terms of your ability to understand dynamically what's occurring. So those are sort of the the ways that we unify. We talk about space and time together. And also... If you're near a black hole, time does you know, depend on how close you are to the black hole and how massive the black hole is. I don't fully understand when people say this. Like, what's the relationship between time and gravity? So supposedly, the, what I understand is, and I don't understand why, if the, the bigger the gravity of the object you're standing on, like a planet or a black hole or whatever, the bigger the gravity, the slower time um, is to the observer. So like if I watched something fall into a black hole, would it take forever? But to that person, it's just going like normal. Yeah, that's right. So the, the so the one one of the key aspects of relativity, even absent of gravity, is that time is not absolute the way it is to Newton. So in Newton, you could plot time and it would be the universal function always flowing at the same rate for all observers everywhere. And in general, that's not possible to have a coordinate system where everybody agrees on when an event occurs and even whether or not certain events are simultaneous with other events. So you light a firework, um, you know, in your, in your reference frame. If I'm moving with respect to your reference frame, I might see the effect of a firework happening before I see the cause of you lighting the firework. Okay, depending on my velocity relative to you. So you could have things like there are certain examples where you have like, let's say in your reference frame, you're carrying a golf club and that golf club and you're just fitting inside of your car. Uh, But if you're moving and the golf club is exactly as wide as your car, but if you're moving at very high speeds, the golf club gets contracted with respect to the dimension that direction that you're moving it in. And it'll actually be smaller than the width of the car. So you could actually have a, a you know a golf club that's wider than the width of your car and slam the doors on both sides of it and fit it inside, even though it's too big in a frame that's stationary with respect to the car for the golf club to fit. <laughs> um, and that's because of what's called length contraction. So that things get smaller and time scales take longer for things that are moving. But you have to add, so there's no way for you to determine your velocity in the universe. There's no absolute center of the universe from which you can determine your velocity. Velocity is relative to observers, and you've had this experience, probably you're sitting in traffic, and the car next to you starts to move, and it feels like you're moving backwards, but the car next to you is moving forwards. Or on a train, uh, the same kind of behavior can happen. And you can't really say, unless you have some third person uh, can't really agree that who's actually moving. Is it you moving? Is it the train moving? Of course, the whole Earth is moving with respect to the solar system. The solar system is moving with respect to the galaxy. Um, so taking everything to account, you cannot say for sure what velocity you have. But acceleration can be determined. So you can actually, people, observers will agree that one entity is accelerating versus another entity. So if you have a rocket moving through space at constant velocity, you can't determine if you're in acceleration, but you can, uh, if you're moving with constant velocity. But if you start to accelerate, then you start to experience phenomena that, are allow- that can allow you to determine that you're accelerating. So it's kind of like you can see something, you can determine the properties of something that's more sophisticated. Acceleration is, is a higher order calculus you know, function, a derivative technically it's called. 
than is velocity, but it is uh, actually easier and more agreed upon when something is accelerating as opposed to something that's moving at constant velocity. And gravity uh, is indistinguishable from acceleration. So if you're if you're in a rocket and the rocket has no windows and it's accelerating at one g, you can't tell if you're and it's accelerating upwards. You can't tell if you're on the Earth's surface stationary inside of an elevator that's not moving, or you're in this rocket accelerating through the universe at one g. There's no experiment that you can do to tell the difference between those two phenomena, and they're very different, right? Gravity versus motion. And so once you have something moving and accelerating, then you can say that it actually is its time that it experiences will be degraded relative to how it would be behaving if it wasn't being accelerated. So the stronger the gravitational field, the stronger the acceleration, the slower time seems to elapse. So that's why if someone's falling into a black hole, it could seem to an outside observer like it's taking forever for this right. person to get to the center of the black hole. Yep. But for that person, it's just he just falls right into the black hole. Yeah, eventually. You now, get- if you're near a black hole for a little bit and you get out of it somehow, is that you're in the future, right? You're for 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 us a lot of time has passed. And but for that person, no time has passed. Well, um yes, in in a sense. So there's two there are two regions um of the black hole. One is called the event horizon, things inside the event horizon. Once you go beyond the event horizon, you cannot escape out of the gravitational potential of that object. So it's sort of um, like if you throw a baseball on the surface of the Earth, if you throw it at less than the so-called escape velocity, it will always come back down to Earth. If you throw it greater than the escape velocity, which is like 10 kilometers per second, it's very fast, it will go and leave the Earth's gravity forever. So that's purely the velocity. Um, but the uh, the black hole, once you get inside the event horizon, there's no way out. So every possible path that you could take will always take you to the singularity at the center of the black hole. There's no way to escape that. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning 
where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I have a question about this. When we look at a black hole, do we know where, do we see the event horizon? Do we know where the event horizon exists? Yeah. Well, so we've actually made images of it, not me, but uh, there's a telescope called the Event Horizon Telescope. It's actually an array of telescopes all over the Earth's surface from Chile to the South Pole. And it has taken very high resolution images of the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. My question then is, if we can see the event horizon, doesn't that, that imply some something is leave some energy is leaving the black hole because we can see it? Like yeah. we don't we don't know something exists unless like light is emanating from it or bouncing off of it. Like something that's why I see you. That's why I see the chair next to me. It's because yeah. something's coming from that object. Right. But so, a black hole supposedly nothing's coming from it. Right. So anything that's coming into the black hole will be on a trajectory that will, say, come radially from you know some distance and eventually fall into the black hole. And there's stuff behind it. So there's an object that just now is entering the black hole's event horizon. And right before it went into the black hole's event horizon, yeah, there was light coming from this object, say it was super hot gas, because things do get accelerated to almost the speed of light as they fall into the black hole's event horizon. And right before they fall in, they're bumping up against each other. They're emitting large amounts of, of X-rays and visible light and even radio waves. And so the light will come over the top of the black hole. There'll be some there'll be some trajectory that the black hole from some the plane of all the material looks like a giant solar system basically. That stuff is accreting and spiraling and swirling in to get to the center of the black hole. So there'll be something in the distance behind the black hole from your perspective, and it will have light that'll be coming just grazing the black hole's event horizon, missing it by one millimeter. And as long as it misses it by any amount, it will be bent and then launched on a trajectory and it'll come towards us. Uh, if it's exactly at the event horizon, it will start to orbit around the black hole. So you'll have the light in an orbit you know, we think of a planet in an orbit, but imagine light being in an orbit, like almost like laser beams going in a circular orbit around the black hole. And then anything closer in an angle that's more steep than that will go into the black hole and we won't we won't see it. So you're right. We're not seeing stuff that's inside the, the event horizon. So you actually see a shadow. You see a light shadow where there's no more light that's coming towards you. And then you're seeing a halo around the, the, the shadow, the black spot, the black hole's event horizon, of every trajectory of a photon that just barely grazed the event horizon but didn't quite go into it. And these are these images that have been made of these two black holes. One is in a galaxy about 50 million light years away called M87. And then there's one in our center of our galaxy called Sagittarius A star. And that's the this giant monster black hole at the center of our galaxy. And so, um, yeah, a colleague 
a friend of mine at Harvard, Shep Deldman, he, he's been the leader of this project and they've made images of it for the past, you know, five years or so now. And now there's this new, there's this black hole from basically the beginning of the universe that like black holes are usually made from basically stars that got super massive and then imploded on themselves and became super dense, hence black holes. But there's this, what you're calling a primordial black hole, which is somehow not that it's some, it's made of something else. We don't, I guess we, we can't possibly know what, and it's right from the beginning of the universe. Well, it's not quite from the very beginning. So, um, so 400 million years after the big bang, it's not, you know, it's one, it's about 5% of the universe's current age. So it's not time equals zero. So a primordial black hole would be, yes, would be exactly, you know, at the beginning of time. Um, in this case, what they've, what they're seeing is, um, is, you know, is a object that they claim in a galaxy and that the galaxy is is has an age that they've that they've dated to 400 million years after the big bang so it's not really the beginning of time in fact i study something that's a thousand times older than this which is the cosmic microwave background radiation that's 400,000 years old so um, there there were no galaxies Me meaning it was made 400,000 years after the big bang that's so right. like it's the it's the furthest thing we can really see um, because we can't see, it's so dense, we can't see past it. Past it, we would see evidence of the Big Bang if if we could see past it. That's right. So there's different ways that you could get there. If it was truly primordial, and then it could be primordial and then just be located in an old galaxy, that's that's possible. Um, uh, but it also could be, uh, and so where would it come from if it was primordial? So there's a theory, actually, by one of the three recipients of the Nobel Prize, Sir Roger Penrose, your co-author, and... Uh, think like a Nobel Prize winner. That's right. Um, that uh, Roger and me. He conjectured that there were uh, that there are actually black holes are one of the few things that can survive the collapse of a previous universe. So he believes that the, our universe began thanks in part to the um, the death of a pre-existing universe, as we talked about many years ago, and different scenarios of how the universe could begin. And uh, and the uh, question of whether or not that you know scenario is true, uh, nevertheless, it's possible that these black this black hole could have come from the collapse of another universe where these black holes you really can't destroy a black hole; they only get bigger and bigger as they accrete and you know accumulate more and more mass, just like we do in middle age. <laughs> but if that theory was true, then when the Big Bang happened. It just like went straight through these black holes, and so they like let's say the you know the Big Bang wouldn't have pushed the black holes away like further out of our universe. Yeah. So in his model that you basically a universe evolves um, once it's once it's in existence, it evolves for trillions of years, perhaps, and the endpoint of all the matter in the universe is really uh, surprising. Uh, that there's really no escape from the black holes that start to form because you, as I say, they're they're kind of irreducible. Once you have a black hole, there's no way there's no there's no garbage can you can throw it into. You throw it into a garbage can, the black hole gets bigger. It swallows the mass of the garbage can. Um, so uh, so in in particular, yes, it's 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 essentially a black hole. As I said, in its purest form, a black hole only has three properties. It only has its mass, it has its, uh, what's called its spin, or if it's rotating or not, and it can have a charge. Uh, it can have a, a you know, electrical charge associated with it. But that's it. So um, it's really a region of, of the curvature of space-time. If you envision space-time as sort of a trampoline, and the more massive an object is, say the sun, uh, then it, it, it makes a deeper depression in space-time, and that allows then a smaller object, like a golf ball to roll around in the depression, the indentation made by the black hole or the curvature of space. Um, but if you imagine a black hole, turn up the mass of the of the sun from a bowling ball and make it like infinite. So it's, it's basically now vertical walls of the trampoline. Uh, that's sort of what a black hole is. It's just a place of infinite curvature. And so it doesn't really have any other properties. And so can that go through the Big Bang itself, while the Big Bang is is sort of a singularity in some concepts, 
but in in Roger Penrose is not. It it doesn't have a singularity. The universe just kind of transitions, gets more and more diluted, and then at greater and greater timescales, eventually uh, the energy is sufficient to nucleate the expansion of another universe, but there's no mechanism to destroy the black holes that build up. So there's no dissipation mechanism for them. So they just live forever. Now, someone like Roger Penrose, genius, Nobel Prize winner, one of the smartest physicists ever, you know, almost in your category where his knowledge and experience uh, perhaps equals yours. But he seems very confident in his theories about this. How can you really be confident in a theory like that? Well, you really can't. We don't I mean, really know. Yeah, science is an empirical, um, you know, fits, uh, you know, is an empirical endeavor, which means that you you have to base your um, your credibility or credulity or belief in something on evidence. So you you have some idea, you have a guess, and that becomes a hypothesis, and then you try to assemble as much information to support it and see how well does it explain things that have not been explained in the past? Uh, does it does it uh, raise internal contradictions? Does it have features that are more powerful than a pre-existing idea? And you keep going through the list of different virtues of a model or an idea, and if it has enough virtues and has, passes enough uh, confrontations with observation – then you might call it a theory. It's funny because people say, oh, it's just your theory or like, oh, evolution, that's just a theory. But in, in in physics, remember, there's no way to prove something in physics. I can't prove that the Earth is a perfect sphere. In fact, it's not a perfect sphere. It has some distortions to it. Uh, but uh, but I, can, I can make the case that it's more spherical than it is flat. And in doing so, I have to provide evidence for that claim. And then someone else can come along and say, actually, no, it's not perfectly spherical. It has these distortions, and it's actually slightly shaped like a pear, and, and it has these different um, uh, properties. So only by doing that do we have you know, a closer and closer zeroing in on the, quote, truth. Uh, but we can't, uh, very different from mathematics or you know, computer science or something, you can make a proof in mathematics which is not refutable unless, you know, the laws of logic are wrong. And then in which case you're trying to use the laws of logic to prove that the laws of logic are not consistent. It's interesting though, because math, everything derives from some first principles, right? So mathematics relies on the basic concepts of set theory. And from set theory, we can build a set of axioms that explains all of math. But if we weren't using set theory, and I don't know why we wouldn't, the rules would be different and we'd be proving different things, but, but set theory conveniently describes how we count basically and matches that perfectly. That's right. Yeah. So with the, with physics, like it seems like the first principles sometimes change. So we had, you know, Aristotle, but then we had Isaac Newton, then we had Einstein, then we had quantum mechanics. And, and, and it's sort of like the height of creativity. Physics is very creative in the sense that we have, there's, proving things in physics, and then we assume they're true. But then there's another group of physicists that come along and say, you know what, I'm going to change the rules for a little while because we don't really know what the real first principles are. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that they, you know, they're, they're guided by a desire to change the rules. It's that either there's two different ways that scientific discoveries happen. One is that we discover something serendipitously. We look at Mercury and we say, well, that's weird. Mercury is moving in this weird way. Um, and it's not predicted or explainable using the theory of uh, universal gravitation of Isaac Newton. So then somebody would say, I'm going to explain that effect or retrodict, not predict it, but retrodict it. I'm going to say that there. I didn't know there was a word for that. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of, or postdiction instead of prediction. Uh, in other words, you knew that this was a problem, and even Newton knew it was a problem. You know, they, they were quite astute even in the 17, 1800s. Um, but uh, but they didn't know the resolution of it because you can't predict it. You cannot explain, rather, why Mercury behaves in this strange way uh, using Newtonian gravity alone. You need a new con- conception of gravity, which is what Einstein came along and did. And then there's another thing that can happen, which is that you can have a theory and then make have an, um, a conclusion that comes from it that is then uh, a prediction. So it actually happened with with Newtonian gravity. 
uh, there was a motion of the planet Uranus. Um, by the way, did you know that there's NASA's commission made uh, to change the name of the planet Uranus because it's so embarrassing that um, astronomers are you know, impossibly, um, you know, tormented by the fact that saying Uranus has brought shame and embarrassment upon us. So it's true. It was a horrible name. So I've actually come up with a new name for it and I'm prepared to reveal that on the James Altucher show right now. Well, what is the new name? Erectum. (laughs) So, uh, okay, but wait, you know why, you know why it fails is because all the planets are, except earth are named after the Roman names of the Greek gods. Right, so Mercury, yeah. Venus, Mercury is Hermes in Greek mythology. Venus is Aphrodite. Mars is Aries. Saturn actually. Saturn is Saturn Cronus in Greek mythology. Mm. Jupiter is Zeus. Yeah. Neptune is Poseidon. Yeah. Uranus is Hephaestus, I believe. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Pluto is Hades. Yeah. So, it's not a planet anymore, I guess. I don't yeah, know. that's right. So when, when, um, in sometime in the mid 1700s, people looked at the planet uh, Uranus and its orbit, and they were looking at it, and they noticed like sometimes in the year it would be like a little too far to the left, and sometimes it was a little too far to the right, and they had great historical data for it, and just using Newton's laws of motion, the gra- universal gravitation, uh, an astronomer named uh, Leverrier, his name is Leverrier, a French astronomer predicted that there would be another planet beyond the orbit of Uranus and it would be pulling and slightly tugging on or delaying the orbit via its gravitational impact on Uranus. And he actually told somebody where to look and they discovered it exactly where he predicted it purely based upon the laws of Isaac Newton. So how how come they didn't apply that same idea to Mercury? Like what happened with Mercury? Oh my dear friend, you're you're anticipating what I'm about to say next. So All the right. same guy said, "Hey, this is great." Um, and if you think about it, even though we can see Neptune and they did discover it, it was kind of a predict the first prediction of dark matter, right? In other words, they were saying there was some unseen matter that had a gravitational pull on something that we could see, visible light, in the form of the planet Uranus. And using this prediction, they were able to recover the position of the dark matter, which then you could see actually gives off some light. And that's the planet Neptune. So that was the discovery of Neptune. And so the same guy was a smart guy. So he said, well, this worked really well. Maybe there was uh, there's another planet inside the orbit of Mercury, closer to the sun, that's doing the same thing. And the reason that we haven't seen it is because it's so close to the sun it's blinded and we're blinded to its presence. And so it was called Vulcan. So the planet Vulcan was, was predicted by the same guy using the same techni- technique. And that's totally wrong. There is no planet closer to the sun than Mercury. But so in that case, dark matter hypothesis was wrong. And what was really needed was kind of like a version of string theory or, you know, some new form of physics to augment the laws of Isaac Newton. And that was the laws of general relativity that we were talking about earlier. That was what Einstein came up with. So you had to actually change the relationship of the laws of physics, the underlying notion of space and time and their connectedness together in order to have a uh, the correct explanation, retrodiction for the orbit of Mercury. And that's, in fact, what happened. So what is then... What is specifically the reason Mercury is a little off from Newtonian physics? So there's an, an effect of um, of the of near very strong gravitational um, uh, mass of objects like the sun that distorts space time and causes slight indentations in a way that uh, causes the this advance of the orbit. You know, basically acts as a as a as a uh, additional distortion which then acts in distortion, meaning a curvature of space-time. All curvature of space-time is is how we perceive the force of gravity. So there's an additional force of gravity due to the presence of the mass of the sun that's not accounted for. Um, when you, As you get closer and closer to the sun's surface, you actually pick up an extra term, an extra amount of gravity or curvature of space-time that is not present in uh, Newtonian gravity, specifically because gravity affects time as well as space. So you had to basically add the the uh, the effect of gravity on time in order to explain the effect of gravity and mass 
on objects, like massive objects, like the planet Mercury. If it didn't have an effect on time, then you wouldn't have this advance, and therefore it was absent in Newton's laws. I'm still not quite sure I fully understand gravity's effects on time, but that's okay. But the question I have is, was Einstein aware that his theories could be applied to Mercury before he came? Like, did he use Mercury as something he was thinking about before he came up with the theory of relativity? Like, did he curve fit? To make it work, no, no, he 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 was um he was definitely interested in this, and this was the first and really the only thing that he could think of that could provide a test bed um, at this time in 1914 for the uh, observed behavior of his theory. So the so his theory made a prediction that, and that prediction would explain Mercury's behavior. And uh, and then later it was realized there are many many other consequences of. Einstein's general relativity, including the fact that when there's an eclipse of the sun, as there is in April 8th of this year, which will be visible from Texas all the way up to like Illinois and Buffalo, New York and everything, um, and that a total solar eclipse provided an opportunity to view stars that were behind the sun and that were normally occluded by the brightness of the sun and rendered invisible. But during an eclipse, you can see stars and you can measure their positions and there's an effect called gravitational lensing, where the gravity of the object, either a black hole or in this case the sun, bends the position of where the starlight should be, just like it bends the trajectory of how the planet Mercury moves. And so Einstein predicted that as well. And um, he actually made a math mistake, but uh, eventually he corrected it. And then in 1919, so over 100 years ago, it was confirmed that there was, in fact, this distortion of, of starlight by the mass of the sun. And this was uh, the, the great you know, discovery that eventually did win him the Nobel Prize, uh, even though people didn't want to admit it. It was just too astounding of a discovery to neglect. And so he, he didn't win the Nobel Prize in 1905 when he came up with relativity itself, or even in 1915 you know, when he came up with the general theory of relativity that describes gravity. He only won it after this 1919 discovery in 1921. He won the 1921 Nobel Prize. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, how come his theories don't explain dark matter? Like, why is there dark matter? Why, why couldn't it be the case that what he's really predicting is that there's some supermassive black hole, unbelievably massive, that's further th- than our ability to see it? Uh, it went, went in the other direction when the Big Bang happened, whatever. <laughs> and that could be the reason why we experience some weird gravitational tendencies. Well, there are people that conjecture that dark matter is the manifestation of ordinary matter in another dimension. Uh, we don't have any evidence of that. Like there, there, it could be just as if you have, you know, two different. Um, uh, imagine you have two different infinite chessboards, right? And on the chessboards are living some creatures that only are two dimensional. They list live in this flatland, as it's called. And then there's another chessboard, and that chessboard is separated by, you know, it could be one millimeter away. If they can't access, they can't move into that third dimension, either set of creatures on either two-dimensional chessboard. They don't have any access to it using light. But if gravity could propagate from one chessboard to the other chessboard, then you could detect the presence of this other 
uh, of this other universe, this other flatland, merely by looking at the uh, effects on objects in your own chessboard. So the pieces, or, you know, these flat two-dimensional chess pieces would move around differently because they might be tugged upon by the gravity of another object at a, at, in another universe <laughs> uh, that's actually a very short distance away. And that's uh, these have been explored by people like Lisa Randall and, and other people. Um, there's no evidence for this, but that is exactly what you're saying is one of the explanations of dark matter. So this is why I think I think physics is again a super creative discipline because oh, sure. you have these things that are quote unquote real that are happening, but we don't really know why, and we have to just be as creative as possible, even crazy. Like there's other dimensions and the multiverse, and you know every, every theory is basically crazy about the universe. And but in physics, you're allowed to be as crazy as possible. Sometimes it's even better to be oh, there's twelve dimensions and strings and all these things and and that's rewarded because cre create good creativity backed somehow by a mathematical model that you might even make up <laughs> to support your theory is is rewarded in physics yeah no there are you know but but the the issue is that it it uh it might just be kind of an example of science fiction right i mean you can there's more things you can theorize than you can actually expect to exist in reality so, well, well, and I have a question about that. I'm sorry to keep yeah. interrupting, but I get curious. So, like, the concept of a wormhole is that science fiction? Is it theoretical or is it actual? And if it's actual, is it likely to be actual or is it actually actual? No, I mean, there's no, there's absolutely no evidence for wormholes. There is abundant evidence for black holes. Wormholes are sort of a an interesting, almost cultural phenomenon more than they are. Um, a practical physics, um, in, you know, instance of of something that could truly be measured or, um, you know, uh, important in science. So there's there's no necess necessity for wormholes, but there is sort of a necessity for black holes because you have these objects of the endpoints of which are are gravitationally collapsed objects, and there's no way to escape once you start gravitational collapse of a massive star as you suggested early on, it's basically a, you know, a runaway positive feedback loop. There's no way to avoid collapsing to in, uh, to an, a singularity where you can't do There's absolutely infinite curvature. Now you can't see the singularity because it's obscured by this event horizon, or if you like any signature of it would be contained within the event horizon and you cannot penetrate the event horizon. There's no escape velocity that allows you to get a signal out from inside the event horizon to any distance away from it. So like radio waves, light waves, nope. every type of energy or frequency, the gravity is too strong for it. So the event horizon is the um, fictitious surface uh, within which the escape velocity of any object, a baseball, a, a photon, a neutron, a crouton, is the speed of light. And then it only gets larger and larger as you get closer and closer to the, to the singularity itself. So at the singularity, the escape velocity is infinite. And so it's impossible to generate anything that goes faster than the speed of light made of matter or energy. But, you know, all the more so is it impossible, you know, uh, to a much greater degree to do something that's infinite velocity. That would be the escape velocity at the, at the singularity itself. So uh, I forget if this is an Einstein thing, but if you go this, if if an object goes the speed of light, isn't it? Doesn't it get like infinitely massive? Or what's the yeah. properties of so? So so inside a black hole, doesn't it just like? Is it is it infinitely massive there, even though it's a singularity? So mass is the property that we associate with. Um, difficulty in moving something. So it's sort of like inertia. Mass is how much force do you have to apply to something to get it to travel with some acceleration. So if you have a mass, um, if, if you want to move something um, and you want it to have an extremely high um, acceleration, say start from zero and accelerate to the speed of light, then that you're taking some finite force and you're dividing by a very large number. The acceleration in F equals MA it would be extremely large. So the mass would then be equal to zero. 
So the only way to get something to move, you know, infinite speed or, you know, faster than the speed of light would be if it had less than zero mass. So all photons, all particles of light in the vacuum, they travel at the speed of light. And then any massive object to travel to get to uh, a, a given velocity, the equation that tells you how much energy you have to provide looks like 1 divided by the square root of 1 minus the velocity over the speed of light squared. So let's say you want to go this you want to go at the you know half the speed of light. So the energy you're going to have to provide that object is going to be many many times its its so-called rest mass. So you're going to have to supply energy more than all the matter energy that it has itself. And that E equals mc squared equation is the equation that gives you know the power of a nuclear weapon. In other words, the 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 square of the speed of light is a tremendous number. And so, yeah, so any finite amount of mass will require an infinite amount of energy to travel at the speed of light. And anything that's almost zero mass or, or is zero mass, like a photon, can travel only at the speed of light. It, there's no way to slow down a photon in the vacuum. Why is the speed of light a limit? Like, is, that, is it like an arbitrary limit that, that happened to be just like, like magically the number and nothing can go faster than this? Well, so what ended up happening was in the 1850s, in the middle of the 1800s, Maxwell, James Clerk Maxwell, is a Scottish physicist, he was um, looking at the laws of electricity and magnetism and came up with these four equations called the Maxwell equations. And these are four what are called differential equations. And they describe how, much, how big an electric field does a charge produce, how, um, how big a magnetic field does a current produce, and then it was found that you could take a um, these these four equations and combine them in a certain way, and you got two equations for the propagation of waves, so that you'd have a field, an electromagnetic field, uh, either a magnetic field or an electric field, and then it would oscillate sinusoidally with a given uh, frequency in time and a given period or wavelength in space. So, uh, and it was found that when he calculated what that speed is of a wave, which is a pretty straightforward thing to do in, in physics, the, the speed that emerged was a speed that was very, very close to the speed of light, as it was known at that time. It was the speed of light, it was very difficult to measure, but it was known it was greater than about 200,000 kilometers per second and less than 400,000. It's, it's exactly 300,000 kilometers per second. But back then, it, it, so it was very suspiciously close. And so he realized that actually these waves would, would then be propagating with a speed of the speed of light, as it was known at that time. But the problem was they didn't know about any waves that could propagate without there being some kind of medium, like an ocean or air in a room for a sound wave. They didn't know of any waves that could propagate without some kind of substance to support them. And uh, and so he conjectured this substance called the ether, that there was there must be some you know basically this this invisible fluid that fills all of the universe called the ether, and then for about fifty years people tried to see if they could detect the ether and they couldn't find that they they found they couldn't detect the ether, and in fact there was no way to to um, to even predict, you know, a value that would be consistent with what these measurements uh, seem to indicate. So eventually we got rid of the ether and then it was a big puzzle how you could have, you know, light traveling always at the speed of light without any substance supporting it. And that's where Einstein comes in in 1905, 50 years later or so, and comes up with the notion that light only travels at the speed of light. And and light is an electromagnetic wave. And no matter what reference frame you're in, no matter how fast you're moving, if you turn on a flashlight, that flashlight will always travel at the speed of light as observed by any observer in these in either in any of the reference frames. Even if you're traveling at half the speed of light, if that was even possible, and you turn on a flashlight, you will still see the light traveling away from you at the speed of light. And, um, and so it became really uh, the only way to have that happen was to say that when something is in motion, either the time for that observer slows down or the length as observed by those observers gets smaller. So either time gets longer or um, distances get shorter or both. And these, are, these, were, these effects were then measured in the laboratory. So you could actually measure things at very high speeds 
and measure how long they live for, if it was a particle. And if it was moving very close to the speed of light or, you know, some very fast velocity, it would actually live longer than it would and decay at a later time than its brother in a jar sitting stationary at rest on the Earth's surface. And these were all measured. So how did he figure out, though, that light didn't need anything to propagate through? It didn't need an ether? Um, So Einstein... Uh, well, so that was observed experimentally that there was no detectable ether. And so the explanation for it is, is you know, really relies on the generation of how electromagnetic waves are generated. So if you have a magnet and you have a wire, if you move that magnet inside the wire, it will generate an alternating electric current. The current will oscillate back and forth inside the wire. And that uh, that oscillation shows you there's a connection between current is just the motion of electric charges, and a magnetic field is a is a collection of you know is a collective property of matter um, that illust- you know generates this magnetic field. And so as long as you have a magnetic field and it's moving, there's something moving in it. Uh, it will generate uh, a changing electric current, and once you have a changing electric current, that generates a magnetic field. Uh, so if you have a, mag- a current in a wire, it will generate a magnetic field, a constant magnetic field. And if you alternate the current of the wire, it will generate an alternating current. And then if you do both of those at the same time, moving a magnet and having a, an oscillating current, you can actually generate a self-sustaining electromagnetic wave. So it's sort of hard to visualize. It's it's like the vacuum has the potential at all points in, in time and in space to have a light wave or an electromagnetic field. And then in certain places, we call those, you know, an excess of probability to find an electromagnetic field, a charge or a magnetic field. So it's, it's really kind of a self-propagating thing. It's, it's almost like a wave that generates itself. You don't need, there's nothing waving. There's no medium. Like the vacuum is changing in the sense that it has a higher or lower chance of having this value for an electric or magnetic field. And and we have observed that, and that's what's called quantum field theory. We've observed a quantum version of it. We have a classical version. Maxwell's a classical field theory and um, quantum electrodynamics, uh, Richard Feynman. That's in a quantum uh, field. And we have a very good description of all the forces of nature except for gravity, both classically and quantum mechanically. But gravity, we don't have a quantum mechanical description of. So we don't know, actually, if there's a quantum analog of a photon People call it the graviton, but we actually have never observed it. And, and with even though gravity has many of the properties of light and other electromagnetic waves, that's right. Yeah. So gravity, you know, it's, there's a, a funny meme where you look at, you know, it's like a picture of of this guy Coulomb who uh, discovered the laws of the equivalent law of universal gravitation, but for electric uh, fields. And then he's like looking over the shoulder on, on an exam of Isaac Newton, who wrote down the law of you know inverse square law. And so yeah, exactly. Both laws are inverse square laws, and both laws have um, have properties of wave like solutions. So there's gravitational waves, there's electromagnetic waves, there's static, uh, but there are big differences between gravity and electricity and magnetism too. Uh, the biggest one being that you have only attractive force of gravity. Uh, but you can have negative or positive, you know, attractive or repulsive electromagnetism. There's no anti-gravity. There's no negative gravitational charges, for example. So, and this is the theory that maybe gravity might be coming from a nearby universe. So we don't, so it looks like things in our universe, but we don't quite understand it because it's ultimately some property of another universe. Right. Yeah, that's right. So we're not sure about that. I mean, part of what, my research is and looking for the you know the earliest um, signals from the Big Bang's origin, so-called inflation, would be to potentially discover uh, the you know uh, physical evidence for the origin of gravity, in the sense that you know if inflation took place, there will be a quantum version of gravity called a graviton, or uh, and those gravitons will be produced in a way that we could detect them. Uh, using the polarization properties of the cosmic microwave background. That's that's what I study, as we talked about um, several times. So 
you know, kind of what we're doing is looking for primordial waves of gravity in the early universe that would be basically the oldest fossil thing you could see at all. So not 400 million years like these black hole, this black hole in this galaxy, if that's what it turns out to be, and not 400,000 years like the cosmic microwave background, but actually something that's, you know, four you know, trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, uh, like we talked about at my TED Talk uh, here in San Diego, uh, which was unbelievably almost 10 years ago this year. James, can uh, you 2014. believe it? Can you That's believe when we were it? on the same stage. That's when we met. That's when we met in the green room. I feel like I must be going... Uh, there must be greater gravitational pull on me because I feel like time's going faster or less gravitational pull on me. Yeah, yeah. Time's going faster right now. That was the physics conversation. Fascinating stuff as always. And now we talk about more life, personal stuff in another episode. And uh, it got kind of reflective for me. So uh, stay tuned for the next version of Brian Keating. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.